scripture passage this morning is taken from Psalm 24. We'll be taking a short break from the book of Hebrews for this week and next uh, during Holy Week. Psalm 24 ties in uh, very nicely with Palm Sunday, with the ascent of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And why is that an important event? the triumphal entry of Jesus into the holy city because what was Jesus going there to do? Jesus was coming in to the holy city to be falsely accused, to be crucified, put to death, to make atonement for the sins of His people so that you and I can come into the presence of the holy God. That's what Palm Sunday is is really all about. So let's turn our attention to Psalm 24. If you wish to follow along in your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you do not have a Bible with you, the Black Pew Bible in front of you, page number 458, you will find Psalm 24. This is the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of our Lord. It is a privilege, I think, to to be able to look at Psalm 24 this morning. This is one of those psalms that is just overflowing in messianic tones. This is one of those psalms in which Jesus Christ is so vividly portrayed. This is King David, the author of this psalm, pointing us as God's people to the hope of the coming Messiah and his everlasting kingdom. One thing that is interesting about this psalm, though, is unlike many of the other psalms that we find in the Bible, no one is quite sure why David wrote this psalm. As as you know, the psalm served as both the prayer book and even the hymnal of the Israelites, of the people of God. And in the Old Testament, in the temple, as they would gather for worship, they would sing the psalms, they would pray the psalms. The psalms were their worship guide. And with many of the Psalms, we understand what was happening in David's life when he wrote them. We understand the kind of historical setting of the Psalms. But for this one, for Psalm 24, we're not quite sure what event was going on in David's life that that, uh, spurred him on to write this Psalm. No one's really sure when this Psalm was first written what role Psalm 24 played in Israel's worship. There's, there's kind of a mystery there. But the one thing that uh, we do know 
about Psalm 24 is that within the entire context of the Scriptures, of the Bible, this psalm serves a purpose of pointing God's people to both the hope of the coming Messiah and the establishment of His eternal kingdom. So what we can be certain of is that this psalm pointed God's people towards a great truth. The Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who would rescue God's people from their sins, and his everlasting kingdom was coming. That's what Psalm 24 did for the Old Testament community of believers. For us today, this psalm serves the same purpose, except instead of pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, it points us back to the king who has come, to the king who has established his kingdom, Jesus Christ. That's why the psalm was ultimately written. That's why it's in the Bible, to declare the wonderful truth of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and of his kingdom. Now there are three major sections to this psalm that I want us to consider this morning. We'll take a look at each one of these sections and see how they fulfill the purpose of pointing towards Jesus and the kingdom of God. First, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it on the rivers. That's a wonderful statement. These two verses are reminding us of a great truth. The earth belongs to the Lord. He is the one who rules. He's the one who reigns over all creation. There's not a square inch as the Dutch pastor Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not a square inch of creation where Jesus does not say, that is mine. Notice how complete the statement is. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. That means that everything in this world, everything in the creation, every little being upon the earth belongs to the, the Lord. If you are alive in this world as all of us are right now, if you are alive on this planet, then you are under the reign and the authority of the Lord, of the sovereign God, of Jesus Christ. And why? Because look at verse 2. Because God has founded it. In other words, God has created it. He has created it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God is the creator of all. And as the creator, he has a rightful claim over all things and all people. There's an interesting use of language here. Why does David talk about the creation being founded upon the seas? Well, in Hebrew, the language of this psalm would have, uh, Hebrew is the language the psalm would have originally been written in. And, and the sea was oftentimes used as poetic language to symbolize chaos and disorder. And so David is declaring that God has conquered disorder and chaos and has transformed it into order. He has been victorious over the seas, if you will, and has brought forth his mighty work of creation. And the idea behind this poetic imagery is really pointing us towards the later verses in this psalm where David refers to the Lord as strong and mighty in battle. David is expressing through poetry not a denial that God made 
all things out of nothing, he certainly did. When God created, he created all things from nothing. But rather, through poetic language, David is expressing the idea that God has sovereignly done his work of creation. And again, because of this, God has a sovereign claim over all creation. Now, I think some, when they read this psalm, at times struggle to see how verses 1 and 2 connect to later portions of the psalm, but I think there's a very important connection here. Keep in mind the original audience of this passage. They were Israelites. They were ethnic Jews. And so these first two verses about the coming king of glory serve as a reminder to them that the kingdom of God was far greater than the earthly kingdom of Israel. God is not just a Jewish God. And while he sovereignly chose the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to work through them, to display his glory to the world, to bless other nations, it was always God's plan for his kingdom to include people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That was the promise God gave to Abraham, the the father of the Jewish race, the father of our own faith. That was the promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17. He would be the father of many nations. And so as the Jewish audience would begin to read Psalm 24 in the Old Testament, they would be reminded immediately that God's kingdom goes far beyond their little Jewish state. The kingdom of God will be made up of this wonderful multitude of nations. And we see that today, don't we? As we look at the church all over the world, we see people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We see people from all places, through all cultures, participating in and being part of God's kingdom. You know, we hear so much today about diversity. Diversity is like a cultural idol in many ways. All we hear about today is diversity and diversity and diversity. Brothers and sisters, friends, the Christian church is the most diverse institution on the face of the planet. It's made up of men and women and boys and girls from all over the world, throughout all time, from all races, all countries, all languages. There's nothing else like the church. There never will be anything else like the church. The kingdom of God is the most diverse body, institution, organization that has ever existed. And we can know, too, that there's not a single person alive on this planet who is outside of the sovereign rule of the Creator God, whether they are part of the Christian church or not. They are still under the rule of God. And brothers and sisters, I take tremendous encouragement in that. There is no one outside of God's rule and authority and dominion. That's a reminder to us that no woman, no child, no king, no man, no president, no senator, no congressman or congresswoman, no criminal, no terrorist is outside of God's rule and authority. All are under the reign of God. That's a great comfort to me. As I look at the world and I see all that's happening in the, in, around us today. I can, if you're like me, you 
probably struggle with this too. The temptation that is there to always fall into worry and fear and dread. But the psalm gives us a reminder that God is the one who is ultimately in control. God is the one who is ruling over every living being. God's creation can do nothing outside of his sovereign rule. And in light of that truth, here's the question for us. Do we live that way? Do we live our lives recognizing that we are not our own sovereign ruler, but rather are subject to a God whose rule extends to the furthest ends of creation? Do you live as if you are the Lord and King of your own life? Or do you recognize that ultimately you are not in charge? Truly, all the earth and all who dwell therein belong to the Lord. That's the first section of Psalm 24. Let's look at the second section, which begins in verse 3 and goes through verse 6. Having just established that we belong to the Creator God, David now ponders this thought. He asks himself a question. Who is worthy to approach this holy, sovereign Creator God? He says, who shall ascend the hill of the the Lord? In other words, who can come into the holy God's presence? Who is qualified to do that? David was the king of Israel. And David's asking, who is worthy to enter into God's holy presence? That's a good question for us to be asking ourselves when we gather for worship, when we go before the Lord in prayer. We are coming into the holy presence of God, and we may want to ask ourselves, who is worthy to approach the holy throne of this God? Do we think of ourselves as worthy of ascending the hill of the Lord? Do we think of ourselves as being worthy of coming into the holy presence of God? Look at verse 4. David tells us the requirements of such an approach. We must have clean hands. We must have a pure heart. We must not lift up our souls to what is false. We must not swear deceitfully. These phrases mean something. They're not just there as sentimental verses. They mean something. A pure heart points towards inward holiness. Clean hands reminds us that what we do is to be holy. We are to be pure. We are to be holy in our actions, in our deeds, Not lifting up our souls to what is false reminds us that the one who approaches the throne of God must not be an idolater, a worshiper of false gods. And that doesn't just mean you erect a little idol in your house and you worship it. It means anything that we put above God in our lives is an idol, is a false god that we are worshiping. And the person who approaches the hill of the Lord, the person who comes into the presence of the holy God, must have clean hands, a pure heart, and must not be a worshiper of false gods. Now, brothers and sisters, these are rigid standards. Complete holiness is required of the one who comes into the presence of God. But these verses are not put here to discourage us. They're not put here to shut us out. They're not put here to keep us from coming to God. 
Of course, as we read these requirements, we realize that in David's day, there wasn't a Jew alive, including David, who was worthy of coming into the holy presence of God. And we realize that today. There's not a man, a woman, or a child alive who is worthy to come into God's holy sanctuary because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, in our words, in our thoughts, in our deeds. We have no right to come into the holy presence of God. The only thing we're worthy of is to be cast away from his presence forever. But the point of these requirements is not to keep us away, but it is to first lead us to self-examination and to repentance. That's why we have a confession of sin, by the way, in our worship service. We're recognizing we're coming into the presence of the holy God. And we want to be quick to repent of our sins as we do that. So the first reason these requirements are there is to lead us to repentance. And secondly, it's to remind us of the fact that God is indeed concerned with the hearts of his worshipers. We may not be worthy of approaching the hill of the Lord, but we are invited to do so with humble hearts and repentant spirits. And what do we find when we approach God in this manner? When we approach God with a humble heart and with a repentant spirit, we find God's blessings. David says here we find the righteousness that we lack. It's given to us by God himself. It reminds us of Luke's account of Jesus telling the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Some of you may recall that parable. Jesus tells a story, and the Pharisee comes to the temple, and he's full of self-righteousness, and he's full of pride, and in his prayers to God in the temple, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. That was the Pharisee's attitude. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He knew his sins. He knew he was unworthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. And he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, it was the tax collector who went home justified before God. Brothers and sisters, I think we know this. We certainly know we are indeed unworthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. We are unworthy to stand in the holy place. And yet, when we come to God with that awareness, with a spirit of repentance, with a humble trust and reliance upon Christ alone, when we look to Christ in faith, we find that we are showered with the righteousness that we lack Righteousness from God himself. We find that we are given blessings from God and given the clean hands and the pure hearts that we ourselves are incapable of producing. On our own, we are not worthy to approach God. But in Jesus Christ, we are made worthy to approach God. Christ's righteousness is given to us as if it were our own. And we can come before God and see his loving face. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist pastor, said this about Psalm 24. He said, They do not ascend the hill of the Lord as givers, but as receivers. They do not wear their own merits, 
but a righteousness which, which they have received. And then he says, holy living ensures a blessing as its reward from the thrice holy God. But holy living itself is a blessing, a delightful fruit of the Spirit. God first gives us good works and then rewards us for them. Grace is not obscured by God's demand for holiness, but is highly exalted as we see it decking the saints with jewels and clothing them in fair white linen. All this sumptuous array being a free gift of mercy. Do you get what Charles Spurgeon was saying? We ascend the hill of the Lord as receivers, receivers of God's good grace, of his mercy, of his love, of his faithfulness. And we receive a righteousness that is not our own. The righteousness of Jesus Christ clothes us in radiant garments. And then we are rewarded and blessed as if this righteousness is our own righteousness. That's amazing. That's a tremendous grace that we've received as God's people that we having been given the robes of Christ's righteousness, would then be rewarded as if it were us who always did what pleased our Heavenly Father. And if you are looking to Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith, then you can know that you are clothed in the robes of His righteousness. And God will receive you with joy. When he sees you, he sees his own son, and he will never cast you away from his presence. That's the reality for those who approach the hill of the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. And now we come to the climax of this psalm. David has declared the utter rule and sovereignty of the creator God. The earth, in a sense, is prepared for the coming of the king of glory. His people those who are justified and made righteous by God himself and clothed in the righteousness of God himself are prepared for the coming of the king of glory. And now in verses 7 through 10, the king of glory is finally entering. This final section is describing the entrance of the king of glory and the coming of his kingdom. Now again, because we don't know for certain Uh, The historical setting of the psalm, we're not sure what David means by talking about gates and ancient doors. Perhaps the gates of Jerusalem. Maybe it was uh, the reference to the doors and gates to the sanctuary of the tabernacle or the temple as the congregation of Israel gathered and entered for worship. We don't know. But what we do know is that David is intentionally looking forward in faith to the coming Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. And because you and I today have the New Testament, we see exactly what David could only hope for by faith. We see the truth that the King of glory, Jesus Christ himself, has come. You know, one thing we do know about this psalm is that it did become part of the regular temple worship. And and by the first century, by the time that Jesus was walking on this planet with his disciples, uh, this was part of the weekly liturgy that was used in the temple every week. And the priests in the temple would read this psalm 
on the first day of the week, Sunday. They would read it every single Sunday as part of the temple worship. Think about that. Think about one Sunday in particular, that very Sunday that we are celebrating today that we call Palm Sunday. Think about that day when Jesus Christ, the King of glory, rode on the back of a donkey, ascended the hill outside of Jerusalem into the holy city. And imagine as the people were outside of the temple, laying the palm branches at his feet, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The priests in the temple were at that very moment singing, lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Think of that tragic irony. That as the very King of glory himself, Jesus Christ, was entering into the gates of Jerusalem. The priests on Sunday were singing this psalm, but in just a few days later would be crying out for the crucifixion of the king of glory. It's sad. It really is sad. It's tragic because the priests may have been singing Psalm 24, but they had failed to lift up their own heads. They have failed to lift up the gates to their own hearts so that the King of glory may come in. And that leads us to ask, is that true of us? Have we been longing for the coming of the Messiah, but have failed to lift up the gates to our own hearts so that the King of glory may come in? You know, everyone is looking for a Messiah. Everyone is looking for a rescuer. Everyone has a sense that things are not right in this world. Everyone is aware that something is terribly wrong. Terribly wrong not only with the world, but also with themselves. Also with their own hearts. And everyone is looking for someone or something to come along and make it right. This is why people get so caught up in politics. This is why we have such a cult of personality around political figures This is why people swoon at people who are considered to be great men and women. This is why so many people are sucked into false religions like Buddhism, who will tell you, yes, things are wrong in the world, but the answer lies within yourself, within your own personal enlightenment. And I want to challenge you this morning to not be like the temple priests who with his lips declares a longing for the King of glory, all the while hardening your heart to the King of glory, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has already ascended the hill of the Lord. He is the King of glory. And we are to lift up the gates of our hearts so that he may come in. You know, we think about the priests in the temple singing this psalm while Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem. And we think about the irony of that, and it is tragic. It's absolutely tragic. It's sad. And it should grieve us because there are people that we know who are doing the same thing in their lives. 
But as sad as that is, we as God's people can also rejoice. We can rejoice because for us, for the people of God, the King of glory has come. We rejoice because we know that it is Jesus Christ who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We rejoice because we know that the earth does belong to Jesus and all who dwell within are under his reign. We rejoice because his kingdom is indeed here. He is reigning sovereignly right now at the right hand of the majesty on high over all creation. He is reigning over and in and through the hearts of his people. We rejoice because Jesus has ascended the hill of the Lord. He was of clean hands and pure heart. He did not lift up his soul to what is false. He did not swear deceitfully. He always did what pleased the Father. He alone was truly worthy to come into the presence of the Holy God. And five days after he ascended on Palm Sunday into the city of Jerusalem, we rejoice because he ascended onto another hill, the hill of Calvary. And it was there where he was raised up, this time into the holy presence of God's wrath as he took our sin, as he paid the punishment we deserve paying a debt for our sin that we can never pay. And it is there where He, in taking our sins on the bloody cross, in exchange gave us the blessings of His righteousness. He became sin who knew no sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. And it's on that hill of Calvary when He was lifted up on the cross where he revealed himself to be the God of our salvation. And we rejoice because it's by Christ's righteousness given to us that we too can ascend the hill of the Lord, come into his holy presence, stand in the holy place before the throne of the holy God himself. We rejoice because Jesus Christ, the King of glory, God's true King, God's eternal Son, our Advocate, our great high priest has ascended the hill of the Lord and he has entered into the presence of the Holy Father. And he's there today, interceding for us, mediating for us, praying for us, his people. We rejoice because by his Holy Spirit, the Lord has lifted up the gates of our hearts so that the King of glory may come in. We rejoice because through the Holy Spirit, Christ has come in and he is in us and we are in him. We rejoice because Jesus is the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty in battle who has thrown down our greatest enemies of sin and death and the devil. When we rejoice because the day will come when the King of glory will descend to us again, this time in judgment to consummate his kingdom to establish once for all his kingdom here on earth, to make it clear before the eyes of the entire world that he truly is the king of glory. And on that day, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Brothers and sisters, we rejoice because if we look to Jesus Christ in faith,
then we know that we can ascend the hill of the Lord, that we can stand in the holy sanctuary in the very presence of God himself, having received righteousness and salvation from God. And we rejoice because we know that if we are looking to Jesus Christ in faith, then we do indeed serve the one true and living King of glory, Jesus Christ.